Welcome to week seven of the What If series, where we want to start conversations for a better world based on the Ten Commandments. The seventh commandment is we must not commit adultery. In other words, we must be faithful in marriage. So we're here in downtown Chicago, and we're asking people what they think about being married. We're asking this question. What do you think is the hardest part about being married? Wow. You know, I haven't been married, so, but if I were to guess, um... <laughs> uh, couldn't tell you. Uh, putting someone else in front of myself. Uh, the hardest thing is maybe a little compromise when it comes to tough issues. Marriage is a work in progress. What do you think is the hardest part about being married? These are tough questions. Either staying in love with somebody or communication. Like I look at my mom and my dad, they're, they've been together for their whole life. The people in these days, they're trying to throw it away. I think remembering that it's not about just you. I want to do things my way. She wants to do things her way. You know, I just learned that I'm probably happier if I just, you know, go her way. <laughs> well, yes, there. that's perhaps the most profound thing that will be said, so I'll just simply... Uh, Say amen and close in prayer. Uh, I want to uh, con- I want to congratulate those of you who've been staying up late watching West Coast baseball for making it to the early service today, and uh, welcome those joining us at Crossroads Highland Park, the 01. And it's never probably a good idea to start a sermon with uh, an excuse or an apology, but. Uh, I have notes today. It was a busy week, and then in the midst of a busy week, we had some uh, extended family medical drama, and so I was out of uh, the state for a couple days. Everything's resolving itself and working itself well. I sort of thought briefly about just, you know, when I was uh, sitting in a a waiting room in Iowa City, I thought about just calling the church and dishing off the sermon on someone else, but that's such a cliche to say, okay, the sermon is on sex. Ask the youth pastor to come in and do it. So, uh, but I'm a little bit more tied to my notes than I would like to be perhaps today. So this is the seventh commandment as we walk our way through. This is the commandment that tends to get most of the press. This is the commandment that generates most of the jokes. One of the classic jokes. Many of you have been telling me all your Ten Commandments jokes. So one of the ones that tends to pop up more often, you've seen the, the, the one-frame image. Moses is coming down. He's got two tablets, right? And so he makes some comment. And the, the one that seems to get the most uh, ink is where he says, Good news, I got him down to ten. Bad news, adultery is still one of them. So... This is the commandment on marriage, it's the commandment on sex, it's the commandment on uh, adultery. So um, on the one hand, I don't need an introduction because as magazine editors all seem to know, you can grab people's attention simply by saying sex or putting sex on the cover. At the same time, this commandment does make some people uneasy, so I... Uh, went to the trouble of actually preparing two talks. I could, I could lecture on the uh, monastic's view of economic Trinitarianism in 17th century uh, Europe, or I could talk about, yeah, no, I, I used to, when I was a college pastor, I used to speak about sex and relationships all the time. It was a 
big topic. And I used that joke many times and never once spoke about economic Trinitarianism when I gave people a chance to vote. I don't even remember what economic Trinitarianism is. It was an obscure term from graduate school. So the commandment, Exodus chapter 20, very specific, is just, again, it's one of these two words commandments, no adultery. Technically speaking, adultery refers to sexual relationships between someone who's married and someone to whom they are not married. But the, the rest of Scripture certainly portrays this idea that there are a variety of different ways uh, in which we could fall into some form of sexual sin. That there's some very specificity here about what God designed sex for. And so, um, for instance, fornication, which is sex between two people who are not married, uh, is also considered a sin. This gets highlighted in Acts 15 and Romans 1 and Ephesians 5 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and other places. And then, of course, when Jesus speaks about the law, which is his Sermon on the, Ten, sermon on the Mount, where he's sort of uh, providing his commentary on the law, when he comes to this commandment, it gets elevated just like the commandment on murder was that we looked at last week. Murder was actually, if you are looking at someone with hate and, and, and intensity and you want to kill them, that's, you're guilty in a sense of murder. Same way he says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say to you, if you look at another person with lust, you have committed adultery. So I want to talk more generally about um, sex than specifically just about adultery. And I want to do this in the same sense that we have been looking at all these negative commandments. There are two positive commandments, eight are negative commandments. And I've been arguing that there's a grand positive behind every one of the negatives. We're told not to worship other gods because there is an all-powerful loving God who wants a relationship with us. We're told not to empty God's name of honor and glory because he's majestic and holy and glorious and and it makes no sense to try and diminish that. We're told not to commit murder because we have been made in the image of God and human life has value. And so here we are told to protect the sanctity of marital intimacy and that's because Sex, by God's design, is a wonderful, glorifying, unifying, bonding opportunity, and it needs to be protected. Uh, I will argue that God is more pro-sex than Hugh Hefner or anyone else ever has dreamed of being, because because many people actually, in trying to promote sex, end up turning it into something that is thin and shallow. And, and I think there's, there's a, a good argument to be made that one of the problems with pornography is not that it shows too much of a person, but that it shows too little of a person. It is, so, it is so one-dimensional. Sex is much bigger and more glorious than we might imagine. God, is the most co- God has the most cosmic and glorious view of sex of anyone. So, I have four points in light of this rolling out of uh, the Seventh Commandment. Number one, God created us to be sexual beings. So, Genesis chapter 1 says he made us in his image. In the image of God, he created us male and female. He created them. And there are differences. It is considered a little bit uh, politically incorrect and scandalous to notice 
the differences, but in fact, men generally have broader shoulders and narrower hips, and they have a, a proclivity for, for greater spatial over verbal skills. They have male sexual organs. Women tend to have narrower shoulders, broader hips. They have greater verbal skills. They have the ability to reproduce life. And, and these differences are God-ordained, God-designed. They are good. They are wonderful. And I hope, I'm not telling you anything yet that you don't know. Um, so, sex is not our plan. It is God's. He created us. He designed the human body. All the parts. He is the one who wired us for pleasure. He is the one who figured out how the parts would fit together. This is, nothing about this is surprising to God. Consequently, God's advice about sex is good. It is wise. It is healing. It is, it is sweet. It is a little surprising, perhaps. But God is the one who is the author of sex. And although he doesn't say as much about sex as he does, for instance, about greed or money or power, the things that he says about sex are wise and thoughtful and profound, and we need to pay attention. Which leads to point number two. Sex is a God-ordained blessing, an opportunity for the most intimate and profound form of communication between two people. One in which we have the opportunity to be naked and unashamed. To be in in a loving relationship in which we are most fully known by another person. We're obviously more fully known by God. But but we have the opportunity to be uh, loved and accepted in our most vulnerable situations. Now, it may surprise you to hear positive things about sex because, unfortunately, there have been a lot of, uh, of sort of negative things said about sex by church leaders down through the ages. This is because they were reading Plato, not Paul. They were, they were, there, there's this Greek view that sort of diminishes the body. It suggests that the spiritual is what's real and important and what's physical is a little suspect and this is our lower nature and it pulls us down. That, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. God created everything. And, and Christianity, in one sense, is the most earthy of all religions. The, the hope we have is for a physical resurrection from the body. The tomb was gone. Christ's physical body rose from the dead. Heaven is not a mystical, magical, ethereal, vaporous entity. It is more real than earth. It is more lasting than earth. And so it is, it is the Greeks, not the Christians, who, who diminish the physical. And so, tragically, there are a lot of church leaders, some fairly prominent, who have, who have made unfortunate comments, you know, the Holy Spirit leaves the room when a, when a married couple has sex, things like this. Uh, look, it's just not the case. And so among the people who knew this <laughs> were the Puritans. And the Puritans have a, a, a really, they weren't perfect, but they have a bad reputation on so many fronts, and it's in often cases it's not deserved. So the Puritans were those who set out to purify the church. That was the big idea. The church had picked up all kinds of other ideas and accoutrements, and so, so the church needed to be 
pure, no stained glass, nothing, nothing except, right, it's sort of, there's a sense in which this Lake Forest campus is, is, is white and pure and it reflects some of the Puritan thinking uh, about the church. That drove them, that desire to be of a pure church drove them to Scripture. And if you get driven to Scripture, then you read things about sex that are perhaps surprising. So you might not have known that uh, there was no separation of church and state, you know, before uh, in, in this country before uh, its founding. And so there were a lot of times where, where colonies or situations where church leaders had sort of a civil authority. And there were husbands, no wives that I have ever could tell, but there were husbands put in jail because they were not having sex with their wife. Because they saw sex as a commandment in a marriage. First Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, uh, wives, you need to understand that your body is not simply your own, it also belongs to your husband. And husbands, you need to understand that your body is not simply your own, it also belongs to your wife. Do not deny each other, right? Except for, for times of prayer, but then you need to come back. Otherwise, you'll be led into temptation. So they, the Puritans saw that there was a commandment to have sex in marriage. And if a husband was unwilling to have sex with his wife, they put him in the stocks publicly. Because sex was to be celebrated. In the 1950s, Edmund Morgan, a, uh, a, an, uh, an American historian at Yale, wanted to publish uh, an article about Puritans that contained some sermons that Puritan ministers had preached on sex. And the Yale Review would not publish these sermons because they were considered too racy, too scandalous. That's not generally the reputation of the Puritans today. But the Puritans were thoroughly biblical. So it, it, you're, to be, it, you're, you're forgiven if you think that, that, that the church has occasionally tried to view sex as being suspect or a little tainted or something like that. Because there have been people that have made that argument. But in fact, God designed sex to be shared between a husband and a wife who are, who are married to each other. Uh, a, to be a source of wonder and delight it's the way to create new life. Uh, it is a way to glue two people together. And these ideas get developed throughout the Bible, starting in Genesis 2, 24, where we see that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. And then uh, we see this, for instance, in the book of the Song of Solomon, which is a, which is a commentary in one sense on Genesis 2, 24. And it is a, it is a romantic a poem celebrating marital, physical love and sex. We see this in 1 Corinthians 7, which I just referenced, right? That, that uh, a wife's body is not simply her own. It is also her husband's. A husband's body is not simply his own. It is also his wife's. They are to be one. Uh, they, are to, they are not to, uh, not to be apart. They are to come together again so Satan will not tempt us. I can go on. There are lots of passages uh, that, that highlight the goodness of marital intimacy. The point is God is not a prude. He is more pro-sex than we are. He's certainly not surprised by sexual desire. He made us the way he did for, uh, for a reason. And if procreation was the only reason, he could have come up with a lot of other ways besides the way he came up with. I mean, amoebas just 
decide to divide in two and they divide in two, right? You could imagine lots of different ways that God could have created uh, new life to come about besides the one that he did. So, point number three. Point number one, God created us as sexual beings. Point number two, he did this to bless us and to help us bond together. Point number three, the Bible points to sex as a foreshadowing of the glories of our union with Christ. Say this again because this may be new to you and a little perhaps scandalous. If you're scandalized, by the way, the problems with what I'm saying always write to the campus pastor and, and let them know of your, your problems. The Bible points to sex as a foreshadowing of the glories of our union with Christ. Look, um, there are just a number of different ways that this idea is developed throughout Scripture. Uh, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 5, we have this interesting passage. Paul is writing about how we need to be, you know, submitted to one another. And then he's saying, husbands, you need to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And he was willing to die for this church. And so you need to love your wife with that same kind of intensity. And then he says, Ephesians 5, um, he says, look, for this reason, uh, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. Okay, which sure sounds like uh, which sure sounds a whole lot like sexual intercourse. And then he says, uh, right after that, uh, this is a profound mystery. I am talking about Christ and the church. And you go, no, actually you were talking about husband and a wife. And you were talking about, it sure sounded like you were talking about sex. And yet he says, this is a profound mystery. I am talking about Christ and the church. We have several allusions along similar lines in the book of Revelation. We have the entire book of Hosea in which, in which God is talking about the fact that he is, he is married to the church. Right? That's a, that's a big theme in the book of Revelation, that marriage, the big marriage, the ultimate marriage is not the union between a husband and a wife on earth. The ultimate marriage that our marriages point to is the marriage between Christ and the church. And in Hosea, there's all this talk about uh, about about spiritual infidelity being the same thing as prostitution. And, and, and this idea of sex is pulled together and there's illusions here. The, perhaps the oddest or weirdest uh, illustration of this is in Romans chapter 7 where Paul makes this, this kind of analogy and in, in, uh, talks about spiritual fidelity and sex and he's talking about the union uh, weaving in imagery about sex, but also talking about the need for us to be committed to Christ. So uh, I was, uh, I, I found myself embarrassed this week uh, twice at the same moment. Um, I was at a Starbucks and I, I had file folders, and my file folders that are labeled sex have lots of articles in them. Nothing salacious, but lots of sermons, lots of commentaries, lots of articles. And I'm not really thinking about it, but I'm sitting there at Starbucks reading these uh, files that are labeled sex, and suddenly it occurs to me, yeah, I probably should not have uh, brought these files so prominently labeled to a public place. So I was a little embarrassed by that. And then I was also embarrassed when 
I'm looking through history at the number of people who have made the connection that, that, that it took me a long time to make. And, I, and I've not ever really actively promoted as much. That there's a sense in which the opportunity to be naked and unashamed right, is really sort of a statement towards the gospel in which we have an opportunity in a union with God through the forgiveness of Christ, through a relationship with Christ, to be fully known, right? to be naked before God, fully known and unashamed because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And once that starts to come into focus, you see all these passages that sort of highlight that. We tend to, we tend to have a negative, somewhat tainted view about sex. The Bible doesn't. So, <clears throat> let me say, there's no such thing as casual sex, because there's nothing casual about sex. But part of the point there is there's no such thing about a casual commitment to God, because there's nothing casual about that either. Right? And there's a sense in which there are spiritual overtones that we need to understand about the opportunity to enter into a relationship in which we are intimately naked and unashamed. And that comes through sex with our partner. That comes with God. Which brings us to the fourth point. God demands that sex is protected. Because sex is so much more than a physical act, because it is the union of two lives, because he designed it to be glue between two people, who have made a lifelong commitment to each other. Because he designed it in a way that refreshes a relationship. Because he designed it to lead to new life, which happens in the context, ideally, of, of, a, of a family and a long-term commitment to care for and nurture this new life. Because sex has spiritual implications and overtones, it must be protected. There is no such thing as casual sex, and there is no such thing as a casual commitment to Christ. And so we have a number of passages that talk about this. Exodus chapter 20, the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Additionally, there are all kinds of stories that, that where we see the downside of people who have not followed this counsel. Abraham and Hagar, David and Bathsheba, Amnon and Tamar. I mean, we could just go down a long list of people where we see the, 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 the drama and the, the pain and all the sort of uh, ripple effects that happen because of adultery. We get, uh, in Proverbs chapter 5, we get a commentary. This, so Proverbs is, the, especially the first part, is largely advice from a father to his, to his sons. And there's a whole lot of advice about sex in there. Uh, and, and it's also, in many senses, a commentary on, on the seventh commandment. And so in Proverbs chapter 5, we read, Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, 
a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? So Proverbs 5, as so many other places in Scripture, celebrates the whole intoxicating aspect of love between a husband and a wife. It's a good thing. But it makes it very clear that we are to confine our passions into the context of the marital union. And, and, and this passage, it, it can be a little hard to understand, the Proverbs 5 passage can be a little hard to understand initially. So let me just say that when he, when he says, should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone. He's not talking about this man's wife. He's talking about his own sexual life. Where is he channeling his thoughts? Where is he channeling his enemies? There are many passages that are going to talk about the need for us to restrict sexual intimacy to marriage. Hebrews 13, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, Romans 13. But, but perhaps the most significant one for the seventh commandment would be what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right hand, uh, eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. These are horrifying words. Uh, they deserve more time than I can give them today. Let me just quickly note that Jesus is, is talking about the sanctity of marriage, and he's making an important point. Our most important sexual organ is our mind, right? And it is our thoughts. And so Jesus says it's not simply the physical act. We need to hold every thought captive. So there is so much more that could be, and I suppose in one sense should be said about this topic. I have entertained over the last 10 years, the possibility of doing a series just on sex. I, I've always decided not to, principally because I have three boys who are living at home and I could only imagine how horrified they would be uh, if I said I was going to do this. And so, um, so I have not, um, but I want you to just get a flyover of all the different ways that, that God speaks to this topic. So far, I've argued that God created us as sexual beings. He did this to bless us and to create a bond to help hold people together. I have said that there is a sense in which this bond is a foreshadowing of the blessings of heaven and our our unity with Christ, and that we should reserve sex for marriage. Uh, I have also argued that God has the most glorious and cosmic view of sex possible. So let me just make a couple other observations. Sex can undo not only individuals— as I'm sure you're aware, your own life or the lives of others, uh, sex can also undo entire cultures. So I wrote about this in the book Future View. I'm not going to say a whole lot now other than to say I remember when I decided to study the sexual revolution of the 60s, I came away shocked at how much more of a revolution it was than I had previously understood. So... Uh, It is ironic we are now living in an age 
where sex could be so fundamentally misunderstood by people who desperately seem to want to understand little else. It is ironic that those who try to make it more than it is fail to see that they actually making, end up making it less than it can be. It's ironic that as we become more and more sexualized, we not only have fewer children, but also people are having sex less often than 30 years ago. Let me note, if you're single, the call is to chastity, which I understand is an unthinkable call in many circles. C.S. Lewis called it the most unpopular of all the Christian virtues. Uh, But the one who knows you best, who designed you, the one who loves you the most completely, has given you advice and says, this is the way forward. And you can, in fact, uh, live a complete life without having sex with other people. Okay? You can. Freud is the one that says you're repressing, you know, you, we got to go into the whole id, ego, superego. And his argument was that sex is what's most basic to us and morality is something sprinkled on top by the church and it suppresses our innermost desires. No, that is, that is not a biblical anthropology. God has, has written his laws on our heart. And, and God is, is, has said in our innermost being, right, if you go down this path, uh, you will be hurt. This is a violation. This is sin. This is wrong. So I, I, I have all kinds of conversations with people for whom uh, there has been a, a willingness, a desire, a pattern of sleeping around. And, and I often find, in the end, people expressing huge frustration and disappointment. And, and, and I, part of the point that I make is, look, the only way you can do this is to harden your heart from what it's supposed to be. Right? The only, God created sex to bond you together, to cleave. That's the language we get in the Bible, that we, we leave our father and mother and we cleave. That's, that, that's, that's the word for glue. We're going to glue ourselves to someone else. And you can't glue yourself to someone else casually and then just take that and go somewhere else. So it rips a piece of our heart out. Sex is designed to be shared with someone with whom you are sharing everything. Your, your social life, your emotional life, your financial life. I mean, it's not simply a physical act. It is so much more profound than that. And so, um, look, sex only really has a chance of working as it should in marriage. And so we have to understand, again, there's no such thing as casual sex. It's not designed to be casual. And we can treat it as casual, but we hurt ourselves, and we harden our hearts, and we we put ourselves in a position we don't want to be. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that sex is one of the character assassins that is used by our enemy to undo us. So sex not only uh, often leads people to do remarkably foolish and sometimes bizarre things, but uh, it, it grievously misinforms, I think our enemy grievously misinforms us about the glories and purity of sex. So my, my plea today is to say that we need to obey the seventh commandment and pursue sexual purity, whoever you are, because that is the only way life really works and because that is the way we become whole, 
and because there's a pathway, that is the pathway to lasting joy and to safeguard our soul. So in a minute, I'm going to give you a minute to, uh, to think about where you're at. I've thrown a lot of things at you this morning, and I want to give you a moment to reflect. And I want to, I want to coach you on that for just a second. Uh, I, I want to say, look, we are all uh, beat up on this topic. It, is, it, is a, it can be a full-time job to try and maintain sexual purity in this culture at this moment. None of us are without sin. And so I want to say, okay, we need, to, we, need to, we need to allow the Spirit of God to speak to us and to bring to light some understanding of how we have been living and where we have been rounding corners and what our mental or visual diet has been and what it could be and what it should be. I, I want to coach you just proactively to note that in Scripture, we are told to resist the devil uh, except when it comes to sexual sin. And then we're, we're not told to resist, we're told to flee. Right? So we, we've got the illustration of Joseph with Potiphar's wife, but we've also just got other, it says, flee this kind of temptation. You don't run around the corner to see if the temptation is going to catch up to you. It's just a matter of saying, uh, I need to flee. And then I, I want to I say again, I want to come back to this idea that in Christ, as we confess our sins, we can be naked and unashamed because of the work of Christ in our heart. We can be fully known and, and loved because it is not a love because of who we are. <laughs> and so, so I'm going give, to give you time to, uh, to just privately, quietly to confess your sin, to allow the Spirit of God to, to speak to you. And then after about a minute... Uh, I'm going to pull it together, and I will pray for us. So let's um, calm our hearts and enter into a time of reflection. Lord God, 
As we turn to your word, we are aware that um, following uh, adultery with Bathsheba, David said, search me, know my heart. We continue to ask that you would search us, you would know our hearts, you would look down, Spirit of God, with grace and favor upon us as we confess that um, we have not always treated the gift of our sexuality in, in the way you have told us to. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to under, understand ourselves more clearly. I help, pray that you would help us to understand uh, our sexuality more clearly. I pray that you would help us to see other people as you see them. Guide and direct us. May your, uh, may your church, may we grow more and more like Christ and to be um, holy and, and increasingly um, sanctified through the work of Christ. I pray for those who come with uh, remorse, frustration, guilt, uh, regret around this area. I pray that you would... You would Extend your grace and a sense of peace and a sense of next steps for them uh, on this whole area of sex and our purity in our relationship. So, Father, continue to appeal for your grace. Spirit of God, we pray that you would help us navigate the situations in which we find ourselves in in ways that reflect who you are, your design for sex, and that are pleasing to you. Guide us to that end, we pray. Amen.